0: You have a Bible there in front of you. You can turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. As we continue in our series, imagine that today we're looking together at humility. Humility. As we begin, I want to read with us from Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. It says, Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross for this reason god highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that so that at the name of jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that jesus christ is lord To the glory of God the Father. This evening we consider together this one quality or characteristic that seems to be at the crossroads of all the others. If you look back over the list of, of qualities or characteristics of the kingdom of God that we have imagined together from the scriptures, you would find that humility seems to be a kind of foundation of all of them. If you want to be obedient to God, you have to find yourself below Him. If you want to sacrifice for others, you have to have a desire to serve them, to put others' needs ahead of your own. The early church father Augustine said, Do you wish to rise? Begin by descending. You plan a tower that will pierce the clouds. Lay first the foundation humility. And so we come to the most appropriate place in all of the scriptures to be reminded of Christ's example of humility in the most literal sense for us. This hymn in Philippians chapter 2. Now the truth is though when it comes to this little hymn in Philippians chapter 2 we kind of sing it sometimes a lot like we sing some songs in our hymnal. Yeah, the, the first half, that is, it, it seems to be in two stanzas, and that first verse of this Philippian hymn gets treated like verse number three in your common hymnal. Gets kind of lonely. Now, I'm not advocating that. We need to start singing all four every time. That's not me. I heard an amen, a second, a motion passed. Unanimous? Okay. But you know, sometimes we favor certain verses over others. There are some hymns in your hymn book. I could recite verse one and four, but I couldn't tell you verse two and three. They don't get picked very often. And I'm not saying we don't uh, read all of the Christ hymn in Philippians chapter two every now and then, but we sure enjoy the second verse more than the first. You see, Christ is humbled first, and then he is exalted. In verse 2, and we like to sing the song of his exaltation, bestowed on him the name which is above every other name. We much prefer that to stanza number one. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. We're quick to move on to the Christ who's lifted up and spend less time on the fact that God himself was lowered down. That is, of course, because if we're going to imitate Christ, if we're going to imagine what his kingdom is like and bring it to life in our lives, it's a lot more fun for believers around the world to think about the victory we have in Jesus than the descent that he delivers to us when we imitate him. Let this... Be in you, which is in Christ. You know, there's several different words that we translate, that little Greek word, depending on which translation of the scriptures you have, they're all they're all good. They're they're trying to suggest that what it is about Christ, his characteristics, what he embodied, is what you ought to have in you. And so the scriptures trying to describe that center of the person in Greek life, give us a couple different words to try and help us understand it in English. Let this be in you. Your scripture might say, let this heart be in you. Sometimes it's translated heart in the Bible, that little word. Have this heart in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2, 5. And it's true, there is a lot of heart that is needed if we're going to have the kind of humility that Jesus displayed. I've put it as your first point on the handout in front of you, that humility is earned with courage. And in some ways, uh, maybe Christians are a lot like uh, a couple of those folks on that yellow brick road on their way to see the wizard. We're lacking something, and maybe what we need more of to imitate Christ's humility is courage. You see, courage, uh, humility in, in Greek life, in even the day of Christ, was not an... A virtue that was applauded. No one ever went around praising all those who made themselves low. It was not popular in the Greco-Roman world. It's not popular today. Nobody is excited about lowering themselves. In fact, the famous philosopher Aristotle used to critique humility in this way. He was not convinced that it could be put among the list of virtues. In fact, his concern was that our human desire is for a certain kind of greatness. He called that uh, magnanimity. You know, our our greatness as humans, our pursuit of that could too easily be suppressed if we were to make humility or humiliation a virtue. We would uh, have lost something if we desire to be Made low. So he threw it out, decided it's not as important. And certainly today there are very few that are hoisted up in front of us as praiseworthy who are determined not to be. Those who get the most attention seem to be those who put themselves at the center of attention. We rarely uh, place as leaders or become excited about with fame those who've made themselves truly low. Humility is not a word held in high regard. It carries with it a sense of low self-esteem or worse powerlessness, a subjection to authority. And in our modern world and even in the, the legacy of pagan Greek and Roman philosophy, this is just not acceptable. And in that world along comes Jewish and Christian thought who seemed to suggest something entirely different. Following the example of Jesus, even the first believers had the courage to say, you can find power in things that don't look like it. If humility was seen as a characteristic of a people humiliated, Jewish Christian thought began to say that you can be humiliated and still be secure in your identity. They had received from Christ a new identity, an identity that didn't depend on being lifted up by the world. They were in a state where they were no longer afraid of their condition. They had lived with a vision of a world that was not based on dominance and power. And so humility, even for the earliest church, became a term that they chose for themselves and even began to express as something that united them together. Let this heart be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. You see, to be humble in the Hebrew Scriptures was a positive thing. I think of the words of the prophet Zephaniah who said that, uh, who places in the lips of God the words, I will remove from your midst the proudly ones. You shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain for I will leave the midst of you I will leave in the midst of you a people humble and lowly they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord those who are left in Israel they shall do no wrong and utter no lies nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue You see, in the Jewish vision, in the Israelites' picture, there's no one proud left when God gets done with His work because humility brought them together in the common good for all. They were connected because they had altogether been made low. And yet in their lowness, they were secure in who they were in Christ. Taking on that form, I'm convinced, requires courage. They had to be willing to swim upstream, in a sense, to turn against the ways of the world and embrace a vision for life that only God can give. But it's not only a New Testament characteristic. In the four gospel accounts given to us, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are 89 chapters of of biblical text. There's only one place where Jesus tells us about his own heart. We learn much in the four Gospels about Christ's teaching. We read of his birth, his ministry, his disciples. We're told of his travels, his prayer habits. There are lengthy speeches, repeated objections by his hearers that prompt further teaching. We learn about how he understood himself in a relationship to the Old Testament in all four accounts. We get his unjust arrest, his shameful death, his resurrection. But in only one place... Perhaps the most wonderful words ever uttered on human lips do we hear Jesus open himself up to his very heart when he says to the humble laborer, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, for I am gentle and lowly in heart you see it's the same word there that lowly it it could be translated i am gentle and humble hearted the one place where jesus opens up to us precisely what his heart is all about he says it is gentle and lowly jesus himself lowly and humble calls us in that passage to be yoke fellows with him you remember to walk and work in tandem with him. In a world that exploits the humble, Jesus says, make yourself like me because I've taken on the cause of those who have been brought low. I'm in the yoke doing the work right alongside you. Jesus says his heart is lowly. And Paul says, have the same heart in you that is in Christ Jesus. There's another way to translate it. Maybe your scripture says, have this mind in you. You see, heart and mind tend to be interchangeable in our translations of Greek life because they didn't picture the mind as the thinking center and the heart as a feeling center. This this word talks about the center of the will and, and decision making and judgment all together. And so sometimes we say this is more heart context here, sometimes more mind context. So your translation might say, have this mind in you. And certainly having the mind of Christ is worth pursuing. That's why I've put in front of us our second point about humility is that humility is empowered by perspective. We have to be able to think about our place in the world properly, where we sit in response to God and and ourselves and others in the world. These help us find a balance between being people who are overly self-deprecating. We certainly don't want to diminish our value as God's creatures a balance between that and being self-promoting, people who view ourselves more highly than we ought. you know, Four times, twice in each gospel, Jesus says that those who humble themselves will be exalted and those who exalt themselves will be brought low. And the path of teaching in the scriptures on this downward movement is clear over and over again. It seems like at every page, the Bible is suggesting that those who follow God ought to be made a little bit lower. Mary says it in her song in Luke chapter 1, that there's an exaltation of the ones made lowly. Jesus' parables over and over again talk, to, talk about the acceptance of unacceptable people. Paul picks up the Philippians to him. The letters of James say the same thing, and Peter locates discipleship right in the middle of the lowly. Over and over again, the scriptures keep taking us downward. But early Christians were also aware the followers of Jesus have in mind a picture of those who will be exalted in the end, of the lamb slain on the cross as our image to imitate. Revelation five says, I looked and I heard on the, around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads of thousands of thousands. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. It turns out that humiliation is not something to be avoided as the world would say, but can in the scriptures view be a, uh, something that leads to glory. Something that leads to being like Christ. It is the way of following Jesus. Humility, when balanced appropriately, helps us perceive our place in God's family. We have the proper value of our own lives, of others' lives in relation to us, of God above all. When we have the right perspective, we don't think of ourselves more highly than we ought German theologian Karl Barth, perhaps one of the great thinkers of modern theology, wrote uh, many volumes collectively in his the greatest theological treatise called Church Dogmatics. Uh, he, he wrote in there about a dream he had of, of dying and arriving in heaven. You know, As the dream goes, like many of those heaven scenes, he gets questioned by Peter at the gates, Who are you? He says, My name is Karl Barth which carried behind it a certain meaning. You know, Karl Barth, the one who wrote volumes about church theology. What have you done? Peter asks. I taught theology, Barth answers. Well, What have you written? He's asked. He answers, church dogmatics. Can I see it? Peter says. Well, Karl says back to him, it's kind of a whole shelf. It it is. It takes up a whole bookshelf, volume after volume. Peter says, it's big, isn't it? Yes, Karl Bart said in reply. To which Peter said, well, here is a little red wagon. Put it in and now pull it up the street. And in Bart's dream, the next thing that happens is he takes his life's most significant accomplishment, one which exalted God as, as being wholly beyond us, one worthy of worship. He puts his whole shelf of a book into the little red wagon and begins to pull it down the streets of heaven where angels upon angels lining the street all together begin to laugh out loud. You see, true humility understands ourselves in the proper perspective that even our best works should be found as as a laughing matter in the eyes of the holy. And at the same time, we know that God does not create us as worthless, but makes us in His own image. We find the balance between making ourselves low and lifting ourselves too high so that we can have the same mind that Christ had. The third thing I've put in front of us is that humility is expressed in simplicity. If humility is about having the courage to live with these characteristics that the world hardly even knows, and if it's found in having the proper perspective, we can see it visibly, tangibly, in a life of simplicity. People who have themselves in the proper perspective, who know their place under God and and alongside other people, refuse to allow themselves to have too much distance between those in need, and their life. Donald Craybill wrote a little book called The Upside-Down Kingdom, and in it he held up, as an example, a people group who seemed to understand this kind of simplicity better than most of us. The most visible examples of this kind of humble simplicity today might be found in the Amish You know, they avoid luxuries, ornamentation, modern conveniences, believing that humility requires a visible and practical simplicity. They take it all the way. Now, we're not going to walk out of here all together and throw our keys in a bowl and walk home. But we can hold up people who have taken a certain belief all the way and admire it for what it teaches us. Craybill writes that the size and number of mirrors in a society indicates this cultural importance attached to the self. So it's not surprising that the mirrors found in Amish homes are smaller and fewer than those found in modern ones. Whereas moderns are preoccupied with finding themselves, the Amish are engaged in losing themselves. The Amish work just as hard at losing themselves as moderns work at finding themselves. Either way, it's hard work. Although uncomfortable to moderns who cherish the flowering of individuality, losing the self in Amish culture assumes a dignity because its ultimate redemption is the gift of community. In a community like that, the goal is to become less of myself so I can become more of us. That there is a kind of simplicity and connectedness that comes with being made low. So we seek, as Philippians says, to have this heart and this mind in us, which was also in Christ Jesus. But you know, there's another word, uh, perhaps the best word, for which we can translate that little Greek word in Philippians... It's the one that my Bible uses. Maybe it's the same one that yours uses. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. An attitude. You see, the mind might invite us to come and show up here every week, maybe in a class or in a worship service, and think that it's just our minds that we were worried about, that we could come and, and debate theological stances or treatises and walk away having put on what it is Christ had on. So mind makes it a little too much about thinking. And if we were to say, have this heart that Christ has, in our language, that really might lead us to think that it's only about feeling. And so we could come, and, and if we could get the right feelings or emotions provided to us from our experience in this place, we could walk away with something like what, what Christ has. But maybe the most appropriate translation is that we ought to have this attitude. What does attitude mean? Certainly you may think about the way you treat someone or a personality kind of expression, but the truth is that attitude says more than that. In fact, the attitude of a a vessel, a seagoing vessel, according to the Coast Guard, is defined by the tilts of that vessel's frame with respect to the local coordinate axes. Did you understand that? Attitude in maritime language speaks of your position. So, when on a vessel and asked, What's your attitude? you don't say, I'm uh, one of the seven dwarfs, sleepy, happy, dopey. When someone asks on a boat, What's your attitude? the person is asking, What is your location? Attitude can also mean where you are taking your stand, the governing position for your life, the identification for your life. So maybe more than anything, we read a passage like this. It says, have the same attitude that Christ has. We ought to be asking, what was Christ's position? He was equal with God, but not, did, did not consider equality with God to be used for his own advantage. And when he needed to, he gave up the position he did have and not once, we're told, did he grasp for it again. He endured great suffering and never asked God to cut him a little slack. It's why Peter didn't understand when Jesus talked about suffering. It's why in his final moments he picks up a bowl and a towel and washes feet because he gave up his position and he assumed a new location. So how then is it possible for anyone who bears the name of Christ to be interested in singing the second stanza of this hymn and not the first? How can we be arrogant or clutch for power or put other people down if we're to have the same position, the same location that Christ had? There's a farmer and poet named Wendell Berry uh, who's written a, a wonderful little novel called Jaber Crow*. In that uh, book, Jaber Crow is the town barber in Port William, Kentucky. He's the, the leading character in the novel. One morning in his barbershop, uh, Barry wrote about his interaction with a, a father named Troy. Troy's son was in Vietnam at the time, which would give you the setting. And they're talking in the barbershop about the people. Troy hates who are protesting the Vietnam War at the time. He only hated them. Not only did he hate them, he loved hearing himself say bad things about them. As the barber tells the story in the book, Troy says, and I'll paraphrase to improve his language, they ought to round up every one of them and put them in front of the communists and then whoever killed who, it would all be good. It was one of those moments in a barbershop where somebody says something a little bit too far, and everybody in the room has to decide where they stand on the matter, figure out what's going to be said next. Nobody wanted to try and top that, that the protesters and the enemies ought to just get in a room, and whoever came out, it'd be good news. It was hard to do, but Jaber Crow, the barber, says he quit cutting hair and looked at Troy and said, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Troy jerked his head up and widened his eyes at the barber. Where'd you get all that bull? He said, Jesus Christ. And Troy said, oh. And it would have been, he writes in the book, it would have been a great moment in the history of Christianity, except, he says, that I did not love Troy. See, you can't be right unless you have the right position. Have the same attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, our world invites us up, and the gospel keeps pulling us down, that we might be found nearer to where Christ was, having made himself low. We pray, Father, we would have that same heart, that same mind, the same attitude as our Lord, who knew where he belonged in relation to God and believed in love for other people. We pray, Father, that our humility would help us to model the example of Christ for those around us in our words, our thoughts, and our actions. In Jesus' name, amen.